Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, CSIS uncovered a Chinese plan to donate to Trudeau's charity following the elections in 2015. Senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, Stephen Chase, will join us and talk about that. And just weeks away from March break, Toronto's Pearson International Airport is implementing a hard cap on the number of flights arriving during peak times. Isn't this going to make more chaos, more delays, more cancellations? Hope not. And new data shows that there is a high number of women entering the workforce again. What factors have allowed this to happen? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, we want to swing back to to the story that's, uh, well, just not going away in Ottawa, of course, and that is interference in, in our elections uh, from foreign powers, uh, not nice powers for that matter. Uh, we know that uh, the, the report came out yesterday that... Uh, said that after some analysis uh, that there there was no direct result of all the people that were trying to influence Canada's uh, last federal election, uh, that it had no discernible impact. Uh, well, uh, that, that's something we can argue, certainly. But a lot of people are saying, look, at nonetheless, this still raises an awful lot of red flags. Uh, Dennis Molinaro is a professor of legal studies at Ontario Tech University. He's also a former national security analyst. And he says, uh, we need to do more work on this. Canada doesn't have adequate protections uh, in place to protect itself from this type of activity. It doesn't have a foreign agent registry where someone who is working on behalf of a foreign government has to declare that interest. Uh, it doesn't have foreign interference laws like Australia has. And so it's particularly vulnerable to this. And from what we've seen from the reporting from 2019 to 2021, things are getting worse. And if we don't solve this before we go into another election, uh, I'm very worried about how that's going to go. There has been uh, some great uh, investigative reporting on this over the last little while, because not only is this not a new phenomena, uh, but uh, a CSIS reporter, information from CSIS, uh, has shed a whole different light on this. Uh, the Globe and Mail has been doing some great work on this. And uh, to give us some insight into that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, Stephen Chase. Uh, Stephen is a senior parliamentary reporter uh, for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Stephen, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time. Oh, glad to be here. Uh, a lot of the, the stuff that, that you and I know your colleague Laura Stone have been writing about uh, has to do with CSIS documents, uh, which we're not really supposed to see. Uh, how did these become available to you? So we can, uh, It's great to get this insight, but uh, this is, is kind of a, a happenstance that doesn't always occur. It does not always occur, absolutely. So were these obtained by, leaked by? Uh, what, what, what was the source of this? How did you guys get the information? And, and others, too, because others have, you know, have tried I, to I, pick uh, and choose. I, I totally understand why you're asking the question, but I'm going to decline to provide any details on that if you would understand as a fellow journalist. Yep. No, no, I, I know all about sources, and we've had that same discussion themselves. So it's out there, uh, and, and these are, I want to clarify for our listeners, uh, what you've been writing about, Stephen, these are verifiable uh, facts from, from these reports, correct? Yeah, we're, we've been writing based on uh, uh, intelligence reports, and uh, based on sources, national security sources, those those are the uh, only uh, places from which we drew information. Now, uh, just looking at the piece that uh, the, the, the Globe and Mail published on this yesterday that, that you wrote, wrote uh, there seems to be, and I'm getting a sense uh, just at looking at some of the, the, the reports that from the CSIS uh, analysis, uh, that there seems to be a certain frustration with uh, within CSIS that, listen, we're, we're doing the work on this, we're doing the research, we're digging up intelligence on this, and it doesn't seem as if the government's paying much attention. I think even by looking at what people who've used to work at CSIS 
are saying publicly now, the concern is uh, we are a uh, we have tool. There are tools we need to put into place to deal with foreign interference, and the government has not put those tools into place. The person you had on or you interviewed earlier talked about a foreign registry yeah. uh, of agents that would reveal would people would be required to reveal if they're working on behalf of a foreign power. Um, also, CSIS and former CSIS officials have talked repeatedly about the need for explicit criminal code offenses uh, that are identified as foreign interference, so you can prosecute people explicitly for foreign interference. And thirdly, uh, changing the CSIS Act to make it easier for CSIS to talk plainly and precisely about threats to the public. Right now, they are quite hamstrung by what they can say. And when I say public, I don't mean shouting from the rooftops, but for instance, meeting with universities. Um, you know, there's been a lot of focus on uh, our reporting about the interference in the 2021 election. But I just mentioned that the globe we have over the last few months, me and Robert Fife, have also written about the fact that, uh, you know, all of Canada's universities have been doing research with the Chinese military university. We've been writing about the fact that the, the you know, this Wealth One Bank uh, is there's questions being raised now about its 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 shareholders and, and possible money laundering. So there's a it's a bigger problem, and the three tools that people repeatedly say are necessary, the government just hasn't put those into place. Well, yeah, there's an old cliche, I guess, that uh, as a journalist you'd certainly know, but it's it's follow the money, right? <laughs> Anytime you're yeah. doing investigative uh, report on, on something as, as important as this, follow the money. And, and you guys have done that. You and, and, and Bob Fife have done that. Uh, and it leads to some very strange places. As you mentioned, many university campuses right across the country, uh, a number of research projects that are going on, but also, uh, well, going all the way back uh, from your piece the other day to 2013 uh, with uh, some, uh, well, questionable activities, I guess, by uh, uh, some rich Asian uh, gentlemen in this country that seem yeah. to be working uh, at the same time with the Chinese government. Yes, uh, you're, you're referring to Zhang Bin. Yeah. Uh, actually, we wrote about uh, part of this story back in 2016. We broke it how uh, Chinese billionaire Zhang Bin was donating money to million dollars to the University of Montreal and to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, and also for a, a statue of, uh, of Mr. Trudeau. Uh, but what we learned recently and what we reported this week is that, in fact, uh, CSIS learned that, in fact, the money came from the Chinese Communist Party. So they basically put the billionaire up to it. And it was part of an influence campaign designed to, to uh, go after Mr. Trudeau. Uh, and and again, these these are information pieces that have been come, coming your way through through your investigative reporting and great work that's going on. Uh, give me this the, the the sense of of, of uh, reaction that you're getting from the government on this. Uh, as you say, this is stuff that's been going on for almost ten years now, according to your reporting. You know, these, this money that seems to be coming in in support of certain candidates and 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 certainly. Uh, some members of the Liberal Party who were running for election in these last couple of elections. Uh, and, and as the government has, and we talked former CSIS agents on this program too, Stephen, so I know exactly uh, what you're referring to when you say there's a certain frustration there, uh, that the government was not doing anything about this. Uh, and and uh, getting the sense now that they're so inundated by information from the work that you and others have done that they're being forced into into reacting to this. And it's... Uh, it, it it just seems as if they're doing a lot of backtracking. They're on their heels right now. Yeah, their their response has been all over the map. Uh, Mr. Trudeau initially said, uh, well, there's always foreign interference. We know about this. and We're dealing with it like nothing to see here, folks. 
And then he changed his, his tune and said that he's concerned about thesis leaking. And then he said that, uh, uh, that in fact, all, so a measure they put in place in 2019, basically a, a panel of bureaucrats detected no interference in the 2019, or t- sorry, detected no interference that changed the outcome of the 2019 and 2021 elections. Uh, so the government is sort of on its back heel, but is maintaining the position that uh, they would still be in power regardless of the foreign interference that took place. Uh, and and that may well be the case, I guess. But as I mentioned in my commentary this morning on CHML, uh, with our parliamentary system, especially with the propensity for minority governments these days, um, you don't have to control the country. You only have to control a couple of key writings to actually have some influence on the outcome, don't you? Yeah, and there were some very strange um, voting changes in the last election. Again, uh, this still needs to be plumbed further, but the Conservatives' vote share went up overall. They increased their uh, share of the vote. In fact, they received a higher share of the popular vote than the Liberals did, although, of course, their vote is quite inefficient. It's too concentrated for, for their own good. Mm. But they, in fact, lost. They saw these drops in ridings with Chinese-Canadian population, and so the the Conservatives have long felt that a disinformation campaign aimed to manipulate and to and to uh, manipulate Chinese Canadians by Beijing cost them uh, six to eight seats. Uh, I can't verify that, but there, that is the concern: is that you know, if we're talking about a crime, let's say someone breaks into your house and and the police say, well, you know, they broke into your house, but they didn't alter your standard of living. They still broke into your house, right? So that metaphor that that I'm trying to produce a metaphor to sort of uh, approximate what the government's saying. They're still, this is still happening, and it's a concern. And it's not just the Chinese. Um, there are uh, ample evidence of the Indians, uh, in the, the Indian government, uh, trying to interfere as well. So I think that this is part of a mature 21st century democracy, taking, uh, acquiring new tools to deal with it. And the question is whether or not the government's going to do that. I think the number I saw in your reporting was upwards of six uh, foreign in powers may actually have tried it at various times, or at least have the capability uh, to, to, to try to exert influence on, on elections. Yeah, we are a nation of immigrants. My family, my mother's an immigrant. Uh, we, we, we are a nation of immigrants. So naturally, there are ethnic diasporas, and, those, and sometimes governments will cross red lines in trying to influence those diasporas. Uh, so they're out there, and and uh, I, was, I was talking. I know you, know, Phil Gursky, is a former CSIS analyst who's uh, still working up in Ottawa, of course, with his own security firm. I just had him on the program a couple of days ago, uh, referring to your reporting on this through the Globe and Mail, Steve. And 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 I, the essence of what uh, Phil Gursky told us was: Look, at they're there. The Chinese have tried this. Maybe they haven't been very effective at it, but if we keep letting them do this unchecked, they're going to get better at it. And then you, you know, who knows how that's where that's going to lead us. Yeah, and I, I really want to be clear here on what's going on. They are manipulating, uh, threatening, and uh, influencing our fellow Canadian citizens, right? You know, some people say, well, you know, your reporting is making it look like the Chinese people are just puppets of, of the Chinese government, and that's not fair. No, what we're saying is they are victims. They are being, and, and in our reporting, and in the reports, you have the consulates boasting to people about how well they did and how effective this is and how easy it is because people who come from another country definitely the first generation maybe the second generation they rely on their own chinese language media or you know uh you know other medias from other countries so they 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 tend to be in an ecosystem that's separate from the mainstream and and that ecosystem is very easy to manipulate 
And of course, they also, um, you know, there's events and there's events where the consul general and the Chinese diplomats, and I, I should point out, uh, China has almost the largest number of diplomats in Canada of any country in the world. Even though the United States uh, is our biggest partner, uh, they actually often at times have more diplomats posted here than the United States. And frankly, sometimes I wonder why. Well, you, you do because of those connections, as, as you've got described in, in the reporting on this over the last couple of days. Uh, and, and, you know, we've heard stories, too, that, that, that you know, there are some unwitting uh, conspirators in this, too. And as you say, you know, if they're first generation, they may still have family or friends back in the mainland. And, you know, uh, the, the, the intimation there is, look, at if you don't play ball with us and help us, uh, uh, you know, something might happen. I mean, that sounds like an old thuggery well, thing, but I mean, they, they, they still use out. those sorts they of They do not like the conservatives. They did not like the conservative policy. Uh, uh, with regard to a foreign agent registry, for instance. And they one of their messaging lines was, if you elect the conservatives, they will make it hard for mainland Chinese students to study here, just like Donald Trump did, and your, your families will be hurt. So that, of course, is, uh, as far as I can tell, having been a journalist who covered the election, I never saw such a policy. But that, indeed, is the kind of uh, messaging that they were spreading within the community they were also saying that the Foreign Agent Registry was out to victimize Chinese people and the Chinese nation. So that plays in the fears, especially of new Canadians who are understandably very proud of their homelands. Stephen, where I, I, I'm not going to ask you where this is going to go. That's probably a long, detailed answer. We could spend the next two hours talking about But we know that, uh, that Canada has been under pressure from from our partners in the Five Eyes and, and other NATO members, as a matter of fact, uh, to to start to to move into the realm of some of the things you've talked about, about the foreign registry, et cetera. Uh, do you see any indication at all in Ottawa right now that they're, they're going to give this a second thought? I mean, there's the inquiry, and, and that's still out there, and the Prime Minister still refuses to call the inquiry into this. Uh, there's the idea about legislation that's going to, to try to address some of these issues right now. Are, are they being forced down that road? I don't know. I don't know. They're obviously mindful as a minority government of the potential for an election. Uh, at any time, they are saying they're, they want to let the parliamentary inquiry proceed. But frankly, the parliamentary inquiry, um, every time the bloc and the uh, conservatives want to call documents, want to requisition and, and demand documents based on parliamentary prerogative to do so, the NDP teams up with the liberals to frustrate that. The, to, to make it less easy for them to get the documents. So the, the pro, my point is the parliamentary committee is, is not going to be able to get to the bottom of it. And um, oftentimes the NDP sort of teams up with the Liberals to sort of curb efforts to go further. So I'm not quite convinced that the parliamentary committee is going to do it. Um, we'll see. Uh, but uh, the government has given no indication that it's willing to make changes or take steps to, uh, to rectify these things. But even the parliamentary committee do not have access to to some of these confidential documents, do they? I mean, an inquiry would because they have the ability, obviously, to to you know use the courts to to, to try to uh, enact these sorts of things. The parliamentary committee doesn't really have. They can ask and they can request, but I don't well, know if, they if they the answer is no. Unanimous, they could. Yeah, because parliament has an un an unhindered ability to demand documents. It, it's rarely exercised. But the problem is that the liberals don't want that. They want the documents to go. To, uh, to intermediaries who would then sort out what the MPs could and could not see. And the NDP, um, and again, we're still trying to understand what the NDP is doing here, but the NDP seems to team up with them to sort of uh, curb that process and, and suggest that it wouldn't be appropriate for MPs to have untrammeled access to 
secure uh, national security information. They want uh, a mediator involved. So that's a debate we're going to see unfold over the next uh, few days. Seems that way anyway. Uh, very confusing for many of us. That's why we're so uh, happy and, and gr- grateful, of course, that you and, and Bob Fife and others are doing such great reporting on this. Stephen, thank you so much for the time today. We'll talk again soon, I hope. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Take care. Stephen Chase, Senior Parliamentary Reporter uh, for The Globe and Mail. Uh, we'll keep our eye on the story of the next little while. And as uh, Stephen mentioned, uh, the Parliamentary Committee is anxious uh, to tackle this problem. Uh, and uh, it'd be fascinating to see just how that's going to work out. And we'll certainly cover that story. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just as a setup for our next guest, uh, my wife and, and some friends of hers were scheduled to fly to Vancouver this past Saturday morning, uh, WestJet out of Pearson Airport, booked the flight some time ago, and uh, we're making all the preparations. Uh, they got a call a Friday evening saying uh, your Saturday morning flight's been canceled uh, and said, well, we can book you on one, I think, Tuesday the following week. I said, wait, but we have to get to Vancouver now. Can't wait for Tuesday. Well, that's that's the best we can do. And as compensation, by the way, these lovely people at WestJet offered them three $15 food vouchers. For that, that's it. That was that was the compensation for the inconvenience that they caused, uh, which, by the way, they declined. Uh, so anyway, they figured, okay, WestJet's not going to be able to help us here. Let's go to Air Canada. So they called Air Canada. Found out there's going to be flight Saturday evening. Great, they said. They're getting ready to 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 look into that. They wake up Saturday morning, start packing. When they're going to go to the airport? You got a call around noontime. The flight's been canceled. Sorry, Air Canada can't get you there. They offer one for three or four days later. Uh, and then they say initially, no, maybe it's Sunday. Maybe there's one. No, that's canceled too. And this is just as an example of the frustration uh, that that people are feeling these days when it comes to air travel. And it's probably going to get worse, especially at Pearson, before it gets better. Because now we're being told that uh, they are going to put a hard limit on the number of commercial flights permitted to arrive or depart from Pearson Airport. I kind of thought they already had done that, the way things are being run these days. So what's going on here? And, and when is this going to get back to normal, if whatever normal may be? Uh, John Gradek joins us to talk about this. John is a former Air Canada executive and coordinator of the Integrated Aviation Management Program at McGill University. Uh, John, you're a busy guy these days. I'm sure people are calling and say, John, what's going on here? Uh, thanks for joining us for some time today. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a, uh, a dog's breakfast, as we say, in terms of trying to get some understanding as to what's going on in the it Pearson these days. You know, the press release that came out on Monday caused everybody to panic to say, okay, there's some there's some further cuts coming to the operations at Pearson. But, I, you know, just listening to what's going on and getting some more feedback from the various players in the industry, you know, that press release just basically was a, a statement that the Pearson Airport said that they're, they're enforcing these hard limits. These hard limits were established in August of last year. And this is just a, pre, a press release, just trying to you know, confirm to everybody that those limits are going to be in place. It's not a new set. It's not a further reduction from what I understand. So, I, you know, I'm still crossing my fingers that the hard limits they set last August for winter and summer, you know, are going to be enough to make that airport work. But it's it, it just, it's so frustrating. I just, you know, I, I outline my, my wife's experience here and her friends with that. And, and, and that's a microcosm. I got an email from a buddy of mine uh, who was in a similar situation. He was trying to find business uh, out to Winnipeg. And uh, he says, the bottom of Pearson should be, you can't get there from here. Uh, and, and I guess that probably exemplifies the frustration a lot of people are feeling right now. When they cancel flights like that, I mean, you can understand, John, if the, you know, we're supposed to have another miserable weather day Friday, we're going to expect some cancellations. But when the weather's relatively 
relatively good. Uh, you got to wonder what's going on here. Is it not enough planes? Not enough pilots? What, what, what's going on? In, well, is, or is there a yeah. common problem? And the, the airlines basically are trying to make as much money as they can, of course, Bill. You know, I think that they're yeah. cranking the airplanes up. They're cranking the schedules to be, you know, fairly productive for the use of the airplanes that they have. Uh, and so there aren't a lot of extra airplanes or spare airplanes or what I call operational resilience opportunities around. So if an, if an airplane, uh, craps out for whatever reason, um, that, you know, whether it's an engine change, whether it's a, a delay because of cruise or whatever, there's not much flexibility that the airline has to, in fact, replace the airplane that has that problem. And therefore, any other flights that that airplane might have uh, are going to be affected. So, you know, and the only way the airlines have to basically recover is to cancel. Um, they can't delay. They have to cancel. And that cancellation, of course, just ripples across the whole network. And everybody's getting, you know, a hard time. So it's not just WestJet, as you saw. You know, it's Air Canada. Everybody's in that same ball, in that same issue, uh, that they've wound up the schedule so tightly that there isn't any operational spares. There's nothing there to protect the schedule. And if something goes wrong, um, somebody's going to have to pay the price for it. Well, that seems to be the indication. Uh, you know, in, in bygone days, if something like that were to happen, they'd, they'd call and say, sorry, Mr. Great your flight's been canceled, but we can move you over to this, uh, such and such a flight, maybe with the same airline, maybe not, uh, to try to accommodate you. It might be, you know, a few hours later, it might be the yeah, next day or something, but there, there that doesn't, they don't seem to have that wiggle room right? anymore. You know, flights these days, you know, people want to fly. The airlines have been putting all that capacity out there, and they like they like the fact that the planes are full, and because the planes are full, there's not much spare room to put, you know, people whose flights have been canceled on those on those existing flights or the remaining flights. So, you know, they'll, they'll pick and choose. If you want to fly on a Friday or a Saturday, uh, you know, and a flight gets canceled or delayed extensively, you, there's not much, there's not many seats left on the rest of the schedule for Saturday or Sunday to carry you. So that's why they're offering you flights three or four days further out on Tuesdays and Wednesdays when they have less, you know, less demand. So that's their strategy, you know, is basically if we're going to, you know, provide you with a backup, it's going to be about three or four days later, and no way do we have enough capacity to keep you on that same day. Is, is this happening in other airports? I mean, we're focusing on Pearson, obviously, because it's the big one around here, one of the biggest in North America, of course. Uh, but, but is it happening in Calgary, in Montreal, Vancouver, Winnipeg, places like that too? We lost John? That sound, that click makes it sound like we just lost John. We're talking with John Gradeck, of course, a former Air Canada executive uh, who's now teaching aviation management at, at McGill University uh, about the, the concern that we've got with air travel these days. And and I know this is not a new concern, not a new problem, simply because of, of some of the circumstances that COVID brought on, for instance, uh, you know, the uh, what was it, July of uh, 2022, in the summertime of 2022, uh, the airlines out of operating out of Pearson uh, were ranked the worst in the world uh, because of the delays by uh, a group called FlightAware that monitor all these sorts of things. And a number of high-profile people that had to fly out of Pearson uh, echoed those sentiments on Twitter with some of the things that were going on. And, and uh, I, they, I know that they, they seem like the whipping boy right now. It's all Pearson. It's all Pearson. But, I mean, it's it, you know with that pressure of being one of the biggest airports, uh, well, the biggest, of course, in the country, uh, comes the responsibility to try to be efficient. 
and I understand John's uh, explanation here, uh, that there's an awful lot of pressure right now on these uh, airlines and the airport itself. Uh, but it's it's just crazy. Uh, if you're going to fly or somebody uh, that you, you know is going to fly, you're going to go pick them up. It's insane uh, because of the uh, the concerns they've got about baggage and, of course, about the flights themselves and canceling at the last minute. And I guess the concern a lot of people are echoing here is that uh, you know we're not that far away from March break. And there's going to be an extensive and a larger number of people that are going to want to travel. You know, let's face it, go down to some of the sunspots, whatever the case might be. Uh, and you have to wonder just how that's going to work out. I think we've got John back for a couple more minutes. So I don't know what happened to us, John, but I'm glad you could I think, uh, I think WestJet decided to cancel our call. <laughs> well, don't yeah. worry. They'll give you a food voucher and you'll be good. Yeah, uh, yeah. will be it for the yeah, rest of the bucks, day. Not 15 bucks. That's all I get. Uh, the, just to that point, though, uh, because we talked about compensation, canceled flights. I mean, as you say, sometimes there's not much you can do about these things. But this, you know, the the air passenger bill of rights and all the legislation that the government has been trying to talk to us about over the last little while. Essentially, one of the elements of that was we're going to have to do better in the way of compensation. Uh, where are we on that discussion? I mean, I, you know, let's face it, the airlines go bankrupt if they had to, you know, financially compensate uh, all the people that seem to be inconvenienced right now. But is there a middle ground here? Yeah, there is. I think that, you know, the, the government basically, when they introduced these, these regulations back in 2019, you know, it was, they made a statement that these regulations are, you know, some of the best in the world and Canadian passengers will in fact get, you know, protected from the, the big bad wolf that are the, the airlines. Um, but, you know, the opposite has been true. I think that, you know, the, the airlines, you know, and, and then, and COVID hit and that didn't help. And then the airlines basically trying to, ways in which they can get away without having to pay compensation through whatever loopholes the APPR provides them with. So that's what we've been seeing. The airlines are not very happy with the APPRs, saying it's additional bureaucracy that we don't really need. Um, and so the fight's been on since 2019. And I think that the experience that Canadians have gone through in terms of trying to get compensation from the airlines uh, and the 38,000-plus people that are sitting in, at the CTA Waiting for a CPA decision uh, is, you know, isn't a, is proof of the put the system isn't working. So exactly. the Minister of Transport has uh, decided that you know the time has come for rules to be revised. He's promised a revision sometime this spring. Uh, there are a couple of things that you know he's hinted at, and kind of would you know kind of uh, change the way in which this process is working. Uh, particularly when the onus is on the passenger to make the appeal to either the airline or the CTA. He wants to change it so that the airline has to defend the position as to why it should not pay compensation. And I think, you know, that's a step in the right direction, but we'll wait what the minister comes up with in terms of a new direction for those for those regulations. Exactly. Look forward to that conversation. John, as always, thanks so much for the time on a busy day. Appreciate you joining us today. Uh-huh. John Graydick, uh, of course, uh, former Air Canada executive, uh, joining us talking about some of the uh, problems that are ongoing and probably going to get worse uh, at Pearson in the next little while. So uh, you've been warned. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today, things are different. The employment rate of women in their prime working years between the ages of 25 and 54 has reached record highs, according to Statistics Canada. In fact, women are now leading the recovery, a trend known as a she-covery. But the burden of household tasks, elder care and childminding still disproportionately falls on women. Experts say the affordable childcare deals Ottawa has inked with provinces can help more women get into and stay in the workforce. 
the um, affordability piece has been a challenge for many women. It's it's a reason why many of them choose to stay at home. Um, well, they don't feel that they have a choice. And even if they can't afford it, there aren't enough spots. So this is a big step forward. Uh, Hank Aviola from Global News with that report. Uh, and it's a good news report, given some of the rather dire circumstances that we described during the uh, the worst days of the uh, uh, the pandemic and the shutdowns that were going on. So where are we now with this recovery? Uh, to talk about this, please to welcome back to the program, Claudia DeSanti, who is the Senior Manager of Policy with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Claudia, good to talk with you again. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. It's good to be here. Good to have you with us here. Anne talked about this in her report uh, about uh, the, the daycare program, which we figured was going to be a positive factor in here. But what, what besides that one, what's, what's turning things around here that, that, that women are starting to come back in? And, and as Anne mentioned in her reporting, seemingly leading uh, some of the economic recovery now. So l- let me take a step back here and just remind our listeners of where things were during the pandemic, because it was quite stark to see Um, how women were affected. In Ontario alone, nearly half a million people lost their jobs in that first month of COVID in March 2020. And more than half of those were women. And not all women uh, felt this equally, I should say. The biggest impacts were seen among racialized Indigenous women, immigrant women, um, single mothers in particular. Uh, So a disproportionate burden. And what we are seeing now is that Uh, job numbers for both men and women have exceeded pre-pandemic levels by about 5%, um, a little bit more for women. So it's positive news from a jobs perspective alone. Um, And and you asked for the reasons. One of the big ones is just the labor shortages that employers are facing. So over half of all businesses in the province are seeing um, job vacancies that they need to fill, and they'll fill those with whoever's available to work. Um, So that has helped, and people need to work because the cost of living has climbed with inflation. So we are seeing the job numbers pick up um, Child care has helped because the, there is a concerted effort on behalf of the provincial and federal governments to create more child care spaces, make them more affordable. Um, but there's a lot of room for progress still there, uh, as, as you heard in the clip, because uh, there aren't enough spaces still. Um, so it's good news from a jobs perspective. But if you do talk to working women, um, what they'll say is that the underlying challenges that they are facing in the workforce have not gone away. Um, child care is still a big issue. The fact that women are underrepresented in leadership roles in certain sectors like technology and skilled trades and overrepresented in other sectors like uh, restaurants and um, hospitality and tourism uh, has been a challenge. And so there's a lot more work that needs to be done, but we are encouraged to see at least from an employment perspective that there's been a she recovery in that sense. Uh, is the pay equity issue still an issue? I, I, I mean, I, I know that there's been legislation about that. There's been a lot of debate about that. Uh, but when when you've got, as you mentioned, vacancies, and they're, they're basically saying, look, we've got to get somebody in here to fill this. Uh, is there an opportunity here that, that maybe you know, we can see a bump in some of those incomes? Yeah, pay equity is a, a challenge. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, those disproportionate uh, barriers for racialized uh, women in particular, we're seeing a big gap in um, in pay uh, and salaries among those groups. And the biggest thing here that we're seeing is um, lack of upwards mobility. So it's one thing to look at job numbers and see that women are back in the workforce, but are they holding leadership positions, senior management roles, uh, fewer than 30% of uh, senior management roles are are held by women in Ontario. 
Um, and so until we get uh, women equally represented in board positions, in uh, leadership, in those sectors like technology that pay very well, there will continue to be a pay gap. Um, and so it's not the full picture when we just look at the job numbers. We need to be thinking about um, full career success uh, across the pipeline. Well, and, and to that issue, though, uh, is this a, a, an ingrained bias in the system that, that that women don't seem to get the same equal opportunities, as you say, for advancement? There, there is uh, it's certainly a lot of um, institutional, I think, sexism that needs to be worked through. And, you know, employers are, are making strides in this. We are seeing a lot of businesses sign on to the 50-30 challenge, for example, which is a voluntary commitment um, where they agree to work towards 50% gender representation on boards and senior management positions, 30% uh, other equity deserving groups. Um, so there's a lot of uh, momentum behind this, but it has been decades of, uh, you know, discrimination, I, I will say, but also just barriers like childcare that have set women behind. Um, so it won't be an overnight fix, but the pandemic did accelerate things. It started a conversation in Canada and uh, globally, frankly, about the need to have women um, not just employed, but uh, thriving in the workforce. So we're seeing progress there. Um, and, and I think it's important too that uh, we keep the conversation alive post-pandemic and not assume that um, just the job numbers that, that we noted from Six Canada uh, suggest that things are, are all well and fine for women. Um, some of the discrimination, too, that we hear from you know women that we speak to is not intentional. Um, and so that's actually harder to weed out because it's sort of in, just ingrained in social norms. Um, but there are stuff, there are things that employers can do, um, you know, bias training. Uh, and the, the government of Canada has a, what's called a What Works toolkit on its website, um, which gives employers very practical steps that they can take to weed out some of that bias that might be within their own organizations. Because uh, I know that's one of the things you guys track at the chamber, of course. It's not just, okay, that, you know, women are, are being employed, uh, but in what capacities and in what figures. And and we know that, obviously, this inflation monster that we're dealing with uh, over the last couple of months now uh, has had an impact on, on the kind of job availabilities. I know we're going to get a report later on the program today uh, about uh, some of the expectations. And, uh, you know, the, the hospitality sector apparently is going to thrive, we're told, in the next 12 months. Uh, but those are not necessarily the best paying jobs. So they, these things are all factored into exactly where this is. There's there's always a story behind these numbers, isn't there? That's right. And some of the very striking numbers that we see across sectors, um, skilled trades, only 7% of workers are women. Um, so that's an example where the provincial government and, and employers and construction companies um, and unions have worked together to increase women's um entry into the, the skilled trades field, starting from elementary and high school, encouraging more girls to, uh, you know, pursue those types of careers. But what's actually happening now is that you have many girls and women entering the skilled trades and then leaving. So it's actually retention that's the challenge now, because the conditions in those jobs are um they're male dominant, right? So they might be one woman entering a cohort of all men, um, and it's not a culture that, or, you know, there aren't certain workplace policies in place and a culture that accommodates women. Um, so now it's a conversation is shifting a little bit beyond just how do we get women into certain sectors, but how can we keep them there and make sure that they can succeed? Exactly. Well, Claudia, thank you so much for the great work that you guys at the Chamber are doing, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Appreciate the time today, though. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. 
You too. Claudia DeSanti uh, from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.